0: Before I was a pastor I was a substance abuse counselor and I worked with teenage boys who were addicted to drugs or alcohol. This was my first real adult job. Do you remember your first real adult job? I graduated college with a degree in social work from James Madison University and I was gonna save the world one teenager at a time or so I, so I thought. Uh, If you know anything about teenagers or anything about people with addictions, you know that they have one extraordinary thing in common, and that is they all think they are invincible, right? That nothing can hurt them. And so you take the I'm going to live forever attitude of the teenager, and you take the life without consequences attitude of the person with addiction, and you combine them all into one, and the result is incredible resistance to change. How do you get through to people like that who think they're invincible, that that nothing can hurt them? It was difficult at best, and so as a staff team, we would gather together and strategize and talk about how can we reach these boys? How can we help keep them out of jail or from killing themselves because of their addiction, their drug and alcohol use. And so one of our approaches that we hit on one time, we said, how about this? We're going to have the boys write their own obituary. They have to write the story of their life and death. And a few of them, right, blew it off and said, oh, that's silly. And they just figured it was one more thing they had to do in order to get through our program so they could get on with life and do what they wanted to do. But for the boys who took it seriously, something happened in them. They, they kind of came face-to-face with their own mortality, and they realized they would not live forever, and that if they continued on the same path with the same behaviors, they might live a considerably shorter life than if they were able to make some changes. How about you, friends? Have you ever stopped to consider your own mortality? Have you ever thought about what your obituary will say? if you had one week left to live, what would you do? And what would you say? And who would you spend that time with? The gospel lesson today is the story of the way Jesus answers those questions. The story of his last days and hours on earth leading up to his crucifixion. Friends, welcome to the fourth Sunday in our series on the Gospel of John. By show of hands, how many of you are reading with us as we go through the Gospel of John? Several of you, great. I'm encouraged by that. Keep it up. By the way, if you have not yet done it, you can download the Timberlake app on your smartphone. Go to the App Store, search Timberlake UMC, and you can download the app, which includes the devotions, and so you've got it all right there you. You can also find a paper copy of the devotions out on the welcome table, which is out in the hallway after the service. You can find it there. So I love that we're studying the book of John together because the book of John is unique among the four Gospels. The other three Gospels are quite similar to each other, in fact. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, collectively, we refer to them as the synoptic Gospels. Raise your hand if you've heard the word synoptic before. Okay, a lot of you. That's great. So synoptic simply means to see together. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a synopsis of one another. They tell the story of Jesus in a very similar way. They parallel each other throughout the story. But not John. John is different. And nowhere is that clearer than in John's telling of the story of the Last Supper. In the, the story of the Last Supper, the synoptics focus on the meal itself they emphasize the bread and the wine as the body and blood of jesus they teach the idea of the new covenant this idea that we enter into a new relationship with jesus christ by his blood the synoptics tell the story in relatively short passages and so uh, matthew takes just 18 verses to tell that story and mark takes 19 and luke takes 25 Now, by contrast, John uses 155 verses to tell the same story. Okay, so Luke uses 25, and John uses 155. John uses five chapters out of his 21-chapter book. A huge chunk of the gospel is dedicated to what scholars call the farewell discourse. Chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 are Jesus' teaching, his goodbye teaching to his disciples saying, hey, here's the stuff I really want you to know. Before I die, you need to know these things about who God is and about how we live in the world. So not only does John talk more about these things, John also talks differently about these things than the other Gospels do. So in John, there's no mention of the preparation of the meal. In John, there's no talk about the significance of the bread, of the cup, or of this idea of covenant by the blood of Jesus. Instead, John focuses on the foot washing. John tells the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So why foot washing? Well, it's like this, friends. In the ancient Near East, before God invented pickup trucks or Nike sneakers, everybody walked everywhere and they wore sandals and not the uh, the comfortable kind of Birkenstock sandals that you know really feel comfortable on your feet. we're talking about a thin piece of leather or wood that was tied to your foot with leather laces, and you walked around all day, not on nicely paved asphalt roads like Timberlake Road, but Dirty, dusty roads, or if it was raining, muddy roads, in sandals, no socks, no arch support. You walked for miles and miles. And so here's a question How do your feet feel after walking miles and miles in those conditions? What'd you say? Hard? Hard? Yeah, they feel sore, right? They feel tired and worn out. And how do your feet look? after walking all day in sandals on dusty roads? Dirty, Dirty, right? Yeah, they look dirty. And how do your feet smell? Stinky. Stinky. I heard stinky, disgusting, and poopy from the front row. That's exactly right. So before I was a pastor, I was a substance abuse counselor. But before I was a substance abuse counselor, I was a busboy at Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. This was when I was a teenager. And this was not my first real job, but I was glad to have it. And so my job was to clean the tables and get the tables set for the next guest. And I helped out in the kitchen and wash the dishes sometime. And at the end of the night, I had the enviable task of mopping the floor and cleaning the bathrooms. And I want you to try to imagine for a moment what my shoes smelled like after a few shifts at Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. It was a a lovely combination, a a head-turning combination, if you will, of uh, shrimp and mop water and Brad's own foot funk. And I had this special shoe box by Mom's Orders, and that was where the shoes stayed all the time because they were so terrible. And I filled the box with silica gel, you know, those little white packets that come in things that you buy to, to cut down on the moisture. But I learned, friends, that all the silica gel in the world was not really going to be able to compete with the awful smell that was radiating from my sneakers So back in the day, everybody would have had smelly feet, stinky, dirty feet all the time. And so it was the custom that when you entered the house, when you came home after a hard day of work or doing whatever you did, you washed your feet. And when you went over to a friend's house or a neighbor's house and you walked to get there and your feet got dirty, when you came into his or her house, you washed your feet. And it was a matter of Uh, politeness and manners. It was a matter of hospitality that your friends or family would provide a bowl and a pitcher of water and a towel so that you could wash your feet for obviously practical reasons. It was the custom of the day. And I imagine people appreciated it, right? You know how your feet feel after a hard day of walking? You feel good after you wash your feet. You certainly smell better, right? And so it was considered good manners and good hospitality. Now, there was an exception, and that was if you visited the home of someone who was particularly wealthy, they may have servants who were there to wash your feet for you, except there were rules. Jewish men were not allowed to wash feet. Even Jewish male servants were not allowed. So only the children or the women servants or the Gentile servants were allowed because this was considered a very low task. This was the the mopping of the seafood restaurant floor kind of task. Nobody wanted to do it and so only the lowest had to do it. So I share all this commentary and context with you uh, so that you can understand what happens next in this story. By the way, it's interesting to note that for all the parables that Jesus tells, John doesn't record any of them. John doesn't record any parables of Jesus, and yet here he records this parable in action. And so Jesus is not telling, but he's showing. And he and the disciples are are enacting this drama that is showing the story of our salvation through Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 1. This is how John begins. Now before the festival of the Passover and so the gospel set the last supper in the context of the passover feast think about what you know about the old testament about the story of the israelites the jews were slaves in egypt and god was ready for them to be set free and so god showed up in a burning bush and he met a man there named what Moses, right? He met Moses at the burning bush, and he said, Moses, I want you to go, and you're going to have a conversation with the Pharaoh, and I want you to say to Pharaoh, what? Let my, let my people go, right? So Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, cool, man, no problem, right? No, he didn't. He said, no way, I love having all these slaves do my work for me. And so God said, All right, he wants to play hardball. We'll play hardball. And so God sent the plagues. Ten of them total. God sent frogs and gnats and a river of blood. And nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to work. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not respond to Moses' requests. And so finally, God sent the tenth plague, which was the Passover. And what happened in the Passover is that the Spirit of God. Passed over the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of every household was destroyed, except for those houses where the doorpost was marked with what? Do you remember? The blood of the Lamb. I love that you know this story. That is so great. The houses of the Israelites were marked with the blood of the Lamb. And so the Spirit of God released the captives, released the Jews out of slavery in Egypt so that they could go from that place and on their way to the promised land. And now Jesus sits at the table with his followers, and he takes this Passover meal, which is really about deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and he changes it into a meal that is the story of our deliverance from slavery, but not to Egypt, our slavery to sin and death. And just like Moses led the Jews on the way to the promised land, Jesus will lead his followers into the promised land of God's eternity in heaven. So this is the context for the Last Supper. And John continues with the rest of verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. For the Synoptic Gospels, the Last Supper is about covenant. It's about the body and blood of Jesus. For John, the Last Supper is about one thing, and that is love. The Last Supper is about the love of Jesus for his disciples. And when we talk about the disciples of Jesus, I think we immediately go to the 12, and we remember, okay, yeah, Jesus had those 12 men, but when we say disciples, friends, we mean all of the followers of Jesus from that time and for all time and this is the story of how much Jesus loves you continue with verse 2 the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas son of Simon Iscariot to betray him the love Jesus offers is done in the face of cowardice and manipulation and betrayal he knew what Judas was going to do to him and yet he still offers this love to everyone in the room including Judas you ever think about that about how much Jesus must have loved even Judas to include him in this love and we know friends based on what Judas did that the love of Christ cannot be overcome by evil John's telling of the story makes this much clearer The love of Christ cannot be overcome by evil. Some days it might feel like evil has the upper hand in your life, in my life. Some days it feels like suffering is the rule rather than the exception. And yet we know that nothing can stop Jesus from accomplishing our salvation, not even the devil himself. The story says the devil put it in the heart of Judas to do this, but nothing will keep Jesus from offering himself as salvation for the world. Keep going, me. verse 3, look at this, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Jesus had come from God and was going to God. Friends, remember what you know about salvation history, that God created the world and called it good, and yet Adam and Eve disobeyed God? And we think of that as the fall of mankind. And ever since then, humanity has been lost in sin. And so the way that God has decided to reconcile us to God's self is through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. He has come from God and he is going to God. He is uniquely qualified as both God and man to reconcile us sinners to a holy God. And so Jesus transcends barriers The barrier between heaven and earth. Jesus' love transcends the barriers that you and I create for one another. You ever notice how many barriers we put up as human beings between each other? Between race or socioeconomic class or age or sexual orientation? And we say, oh, those people are different from me. So they should be over there and I should be over here. And yet Jesus is overcoming all kinds of barriers that we have made. Because in his love for us, Jesus has lowered himself to become one of us. And now he sits at the table with tax collectors and with other known sinners, and that's good news, right? Because it means that you're invited to, and I'm invited to. But with the good news comes some hard news. Because Jesus loves the most annoying And the most difficult and the most hurtful people. He loves all of them. And then he says to us, hey, by the way, you got to love them too. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to love all the people who I love. John continues in verse 4. The story goes that Jesus got up from the table and he took off his outer robe. And then he wrapped a towel around himself. And then he poured water into the basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. And as he washes his disciples' feet, we are reminded that the love of Christ makes us clean. The love of Christ makes us clean, friends. It's the only thing that can make us clean, the only thing that can wash our sin and give us new life. And living as we do on this side of history, on on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, maybe that makes perfect sense. But for the disciples in that moment, they didn't get it, and especially not Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. And so what Peter doesn't get is this is foreshadowing. Remember high school English class? Remember what foreshadowing is? And so Jesus washing his disciples' feet is pointing them to what's going to happen the next day when he suffers and is crucified. And what's going to happen the day after that on Holy Saturday when Jesus descended into hell and took from Satan the keys of hell and death and set the captives free. And what's going to happen the day after that on Sunday morning when he is raised from the dead. You don't understand what I'm doing, but later, later he said, you'll get it. And Peter protests. Peter said to him, oh, you'll never wash my feet. No. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. You cannot be part of what I am doing unless you let me wash your feet. We can relate to Peter, right? He was embarrassed. He he was uh, ashamed. He, he understood the right order of things, and he understood this was out of order. He's the student. Jesus is the teacher. So this is really not cool for him to be washing my feet. It's supposed to be the other way around. And Peter's protest reminds us that the love of Christ, as beautiful as it is, it can be hard to accept because the love of Christ is Humble. The love of Christ is humble, and this is perhaps the greatest lesson that we learn on this night. Jesus is doing the job of the servant. Not just any job, but the lowest job. And not the job of just any servant, but the lowest servant. Reserved for the lowest in the pecking order. You know, we've heard this story many times, and I think it's easy for us maybe to miss the nuance and and the details in the midst of the storytelling. But but knowing, as we do the customs of the ancient Near East and, and foot washing, as you get into this story, it begs the question. The disciples are sitting there eating with dirty feet. Why didn't they wash their feet when they came in the room? You ever thought about that? You ever notice that when you read the story? that they should have washed their feet. That would have been the custom. They did it every day, and yet they didn't do it on this day. So why not? What's going on? Well, the upper room they were meeting in uh, would have been a borrowed space, not someone's home. There would have been no servant to wash their feet, which means that we could have expected that they would have washed their own. But here they are eating together with dirty feet. So here's a clue, friends. This This is what I think. At the supper, there was a debate going on, and John doesn't talk about it, but the Synoptic Gospels talk about this argument that the disciples were having. And Luke wrote that the disciples were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Which one of them was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Which one of them was going to sit at the left hand of Jesus when Jesus assumed his throne as the new king, as the new emperor of Rome? And they were arguing, no, you're not the best. I'm the best. I'm the most important. I'm in the inner circle. And they argued around and around. And so it's in the midst of this argument that they walk into the upper room and uh, maybe let's say it was Andrew who comes in the room first and he walks in and he sees the bowl and the pitcher of water and the towel and he says to himself, oh man, I should really wash my feet. They, they stink. You know though, if, what's gonna happen right if I kneel down and wash my feet then I'm I'm gonna to have to wash the next guy's feet too and I don't wanna to touch Matthew's stinking feet and I don't wanna to touch James's stinking feet you know uh, I'm not a slave give me a break so he goes on and he sits down at the table and and maybe uh, James is next and he comes into the room and he pauses for just a second and he sees the basin and the towel and the water and he says, oh, no, I'm not getting stuck this time washing everybody's feet. I'm in the inner circle. You know, I'm Peter and John to me. You know, we're the, we're the closest ones with Jesus. We're tight. And, uh, you know, I don't wash feet. You know, please. He says this to himself, and then he sits down at the table. And then one after another, the disciples come in the room, and they pass by the bowl of water, Matthew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew. And Jesus Ever patient, ever loving, he does for his disciples what they are unwilling to do for themselves. He does for his disciples what they're unable to do for themselves. He washes them. He takes this ordinary act of hygiene and hospitality and he transforms it into an act of humility and love. The contrast is unmistakable. The the, the power-hungry, self-serving disciples on the one hand, and Jesus, the servant, on the other. You see, the disciples are willing to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. Meanwhile, their teacher and Lord does the job of the lowest servant, This one moment is so powerful because in many ways it captures the entire earthly ministry of Jesus in one act, on one night. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to wash us. He came to show us what God is like. And after he finished washing their feet, Jesus spent some time teaching them about what he was doing In verse 12, it says, After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Friends, this is the second of two commands that Jesus gives, two requirements for the followers of Jesus First, we have to let him wash our feet. We have to let Jesus wash our feet. Unless he washes us, we have no part with him. We have no share with him. Like Peter, we may, we may protest, we may resist, we may wish that we could handle things on our own, right? Because we are self-made, independent, self-sufficient people. We don't like to ask for help, do we? But Jesus says, unless you let me do this for you, you have no part with me. So first, we have to let Jesus wash our feet. And second, we have to wash one another's feet. You mean e- even that guy at work, I can't stand? I got to wash his feet? Yeah. <laughs> even my in-laws, you know, they're, they're so cold and, and unforgiving. I have to wash their feet? Yeah. And what about all those people who betrayed me in my life? I have to wash their feet, too? Yeah. Them, too. And you know what Jesus says about these things? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this is the way things work in the world that Jesus has ordered. Blessing comes when we serve others. And life happens when we are willing to die. Let God's people say amen.